Amen. So we're looking at um, these verses and um, essentially one of the most popular metaphors for describing the Christian life, um, salt and light. Um, um, every Christian is well acquainted with, um, even to this day, uh, little children sing uh, this little light of mine. I'm guessing it's harkening back to the words of, of, of Christ here. Uh, I imagine that partially the popularity is to do with the accessibility. We almost instinctively at least think that we know um, what Jesus Christ means when he says we are the salt of the earth or when he says we are the light of the world. They are you know, common household commodities if you want, so we, we instantly feel an affinity with them and we, we assume that we appreciate what Christ is calling us to. I think it's maybe a, a bit more subtle than that, but they are very accessible themes that our Lord has chosen to speak to his disciples here. Uh, but, but in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which we're, we're going through, right, um, it's actually almost kind of like a, a transitional set of verses. Um, prior to this, we've spent six, seven weeks, something more than that, eight weeks, in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, and then following these verses, we'll spend another, I don't know, nine, ten weeks thinking through the subject of the, the law of Christ, which follows on closely after this. And so these verses are traditional, maybe pivotal verses, very, very slight, small verses, uh, and so small verses that have become quite popular. Um, and what they do is, but what they do ultimately in the context is really connect those two portions I've just spoken about in the Sermon on the Mount. They connect for us um, Christ's words in the Beatitudes to the subsequent words that will follow. At least they play a key role in connecting the subsequent um, words that will follow on the subject of the law of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and they do that by, by telling us that somehow the, the, the Beatitude life, the life that comprises the Beatitudes, which is the life of um, of the disciple results or issues out in or naturally leads to the salt and, earth met- salt and light metaphors. The Beatitude's life is a life that cannot but be a, a, a salt life and a, and, a, and a life that is a light. In, in particular, the last Beatitude tells us that the kingdom of heaven is a persecuted kingdom. And so it's the Christians who are persecuted. It's Christians who are to ex- expect persecution. That was the last thing I preached here from the Beatitudes, that Jesus Christ says these words, as though Christ says, listen, I know I've told you that you're going to be a persecuted kingdom. I, I know I've told you that you're not going to be popular in that sense. But that's not meaning to say that I'm, I'm, I'm saying you're not going to be effective. In fact, you're going to be as effective and you're going to be as basic to the effectiveness or the usefulness of the world as light and salt are to the human life. That's how, that's how vital you are. Your persecution was not meant to cause you to go into hiding. And then following on from those two verses, 13 and 16, the law of Jesus Christ probably indicates to us what it looks like to ensure that we continue to be salt and light in the world. That the, those who are salt and light in the world are those who live their lives by the law of Christ. Um, but we, we center then on this, this, these two metaphors, and essentially they are metaphors about Christian witness, about how Jesus, what the Christian's engagement with the world is going to look like. As I said, just 
Uh, we've just been thinking about persecution. And, and Jesus Christ is almost saying to his disciples, just because you're a persecuted people, just because as it is the case, the world will not necessarily, will not be fond of you or, or your religion. Just because they will hate you because you advocate me, doesn't mean I'm suggesting that what you have to do is going to hiding. The Christian does not go into hiding. And what we're going to see actually this morning briefly is, is two ways in which the Christian is capable of doing that. Two ways in which the Christian might just be going into hiding. Um, and Jesus Christ makes it clear that, that, so, that sort of situation is not acceptable for the Christian. The Christian can't hide from the world. We have to be in the world. We have to be thoroughly engaged in the world, just engaged on Christ's terms. Those terms he describes as being salt and being light, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it, those are metaphors about how Jesus wants us to witness to the world about him, how he wants us to relate to the world as those who are, who are his disciples. Essentially, almost mission and evangelism. You know, this, this, this verse is perhaps closely related to the, the closing verses of, 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 of Matthew's gospel where Christ says, um, that he has all power in heaven and on earth and he sends us into the world to, to teach and to teach the nations and to make disciples of the nations. Uh, very close related things. These are verses about how we are to interact with the world, how we are to uh, bring Christ to the world. We, 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 are, we, we have to have a, a witness. Now before we look then, and, and all there is to do really in understanding these verses is appreciate the intent the, um, the, the, the emphasis, the potency of the metaphors. What does it mean that we are salt? What does it mean that we are light? And what are the implications for Christians? Before we do that, just quickly, some preliminary thoughts, uh, if you want, surrounding just um, the words of Christ in these verses. So these are, by implication, the things that we see are, in these verses, or at least undergirding realities uh, that, are, that, that flow out from Christ's words. One is the way in which Jesus is calling us, he's naming us, he names his people, you are the salt of the earth. It doesn't matter that usually we wouldn't think that a maligned and ostracized, um, a persecuted people could be the very, um, the very saving, people of the earth. You, you wouldn't really associate a people who appear to be in the minority, who appear to be, ha who, who appear to be um, having to go, be prepared to go through times and phrases where they are being looked down on. You wouldn't really associate those people with being called the very, the very people that hold up the earth. They, they make the earth exist. They're the very heart of the earth. You wouldn't associate that with, with, with this. But Jesus Christ does. The only reason why you can actually believe this about the church is because Jesus Christ says so. Um, if you looked at the structure of the church and you saw that it doesn't have military power, um, it doesn't own nations or in that, in that sense, doesn't, doesn't own its own nation or whatever, it, it's, it's a group of folks who, 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 who worship Jesus Christ and who live lives consistent with his law um, and who are hoping in the promises that God has made to bring the new earth, a, a resurrection to the earth. 
you wouldn't believe that they could be called the salt of the earth or the light of the world. You can only believe that because Jesus says so. He calls us that. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's what his people are. The real reason for that, of course, is because they're connected to him, as we're going to see in a moment. It's because he's the source of that. But one of the strong implications of that is there's no such thing as a Christian who is not the salt of the earth. When we tease out the meaning of the phrase, when we tease out the implications of the metaphors, if someone says, well, I'm not like this, this is not me, and this is not who I want to be, then they're just not disciples of Jesus Christ. Every disciple of Jesus is the light of the world. Every disciple of Jesus is the salt of the earth, even if you look at it, look at it as a corporate phrase, so the church is the light, so, so HERC is the light in Hackney and with the salt in Hackney, even if you look at it that way, that still has to be how you define God's people. That's what Jesus calls us, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, and he doesn't know, Jesus Christ doesn't know anyone who belongs to him, who calls himself followers of Jesus, who are not that, um, and we'll see that in a moment. Second thing though is the extent of the influence that Jesus Christ is um, is, is suggesting that the Christian has, or that Christianity has, or that his people have. They are the salt of the earth. There's a synony- the, the, the synonymous here, that, that the parallel phrase, the one and, and the, that phrase and the phrase used to explain that Christians are the light of the world, so world and earth. Both saying that wherever Christians are, they are the light. Wherever Christians are, they are the salt. Um, where there are no Christians, there is no light. Where, there, where, there, where there's no Christian influence, the, the, the earth is saltless. We'll, we'll see what that means in a moment. But this is the, the extent to which Christ's influence is, reaches. This is the extent to which the world needs Jesus. It's not just a matter of a few people who buy into this religious idea. It's not just a matter of, okay, this little crew over here, they they see the need for religious um, ideals to maintain their existence and so on. Uh, This is Jesus saying that if anyone will have light, they're going to need to gain that from his his presence through the church, his presence through his people. That's why... Christianity is a, is a missional religion. That's why Christians are compelled to share the gospel. That's why Christians are compelled to, to allow their worldview to influence everywhere they go, right? Whether, whether they're in church, in, this, in a congregation like this, or they're at work, or they're doing sports, or they're at a party or whatever, Christians are convinced that they are the only light. There's not many lights. You are the light of the world. Uh, there's no place where the gospel is not needed. Um, you can't say, well, this, why, why do you bring your gospel ideals to this culture? To, they were fine worshipping you know, their stones or worshipping nature. They were fine worshipping the forest and the trees before you came. They were fine you know, calling, having multiple gods before you came. Why do you bring... Because apart from Jesus Christ, they're in darkness. And uh, it's, this is, again, you see the similarity between this and Christ's words later on. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So go and teach every single corner of the earth. So go and teach every single nation because I'm the one in absolute control. Because Jesus Christ is sovereign, and as we just sang, he reigns, reigns over all, he can say, you are the light of the entire world. 
people would be happy with Christianity if Christ had said, you are the light of those who choose to be, con uh, to be content with your religion. You are the light of your own personal corner. People would be acceptable with that. They did accept that. You are, you are the light of those who buy into your ideals. People would, no problem with that. You want to do your own thing in your own corner, you could do that. Once Christ says you are the light of the world, Christianity becomes a, a religion that can be persecuted, that is persecuted. Third thing to say then is the implied biblical view of the state of the world. By, by what Jesus Christ says here, but also doesn't say, we realize that we, we are reminded of the view that the scriptures take of the world. By the world, we mean those outside the covenant community of God's people, those who don't believe or trust in Jesus Christ, those who don't have a, a, a relationship with God through Jesus, those who are not Christians, if you want. The Bible says outside of that community, there is this, the earth is tasteless. Uh, we're going to see what the metaphor implies in a moment, but the, the earth is, is lacking in, 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 in usefulness. The, the, the earth is decaying, is rotten outside of God's people. That's the view of the world. That's the view the Bible has of the world. The world is not a place that is getting better or good. Um, the world is a place where sin and Satan reign and things are getting worse because men and women are constantly moving farther away from God. The world is in darkness. That's an easier metaphor perhaps for us to understand. As far as the, um, the, uh, the scriptures are concerned, no matter how much the, the, the world th seems to think it's learning more and more, it's advancing in, in technology, um, it's un and it doesn't matter what the, 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 the sphere is. Um, yesterday I was reading that um, scientists have, have, have discovered things that make them think that, they, 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 that Einstein's theory of relativity might have been, might have been wrong and he might have, uh, by the way, I don't know what I'm talking about. I just know that statement, so don't, don't, don't be worried. But I know that it's a well-known scientific um, theory and now scientists are saying, listen, he might have been wrong in some areas. And apparently for scientists, that's actually not the worst thing ever because scientists love to they love to like learn more and see that, okay, they, they love to learn the boundaries of the earth. And scientists almost respond to that kind of thing by saying, you see how much light we're getting? We're, we're getting so much light that we can now even question Einstein's theory of relativity. We thought that would last forever, but we're always, the Bible says, no, actually the world is dark and getting darker. But that's science, you can do that, you can move that all the way to our understanding of morality and justice, for example. We probably think that we are increasingly, as a society, becoming more, much fairer and more just than we've ever been. And, and it's understandable when you think about, say, for example, um, the effect that the Me Too movement is, happen is having on, on the world and um, how many genuine um, justice causes have been fought by just that movement itself. How many, um, how, how, how more and more, uh, especially women will be getting, will be, will be experiencing liberty and protection in those areas, right? And, or you can say the same thing about racism and the, the converse, this discussion about race and how we probably think, okay, we're a fairer society than, say, when apartheid was, was, was being allowed in, in South Africa. We're a fairer society than when segregation was the order of the day in the, in the West. 
And so we think, we, we might actually think, we, we're just, we're getting better. Is there actually a need for God? We, are we not becoming godly all on our own? And Jesus Christ says, no, only in the church, only where people confess Jesus is their light. There might be fewer things as sinister as Satan being able to convince a believer that the world is not what God says it is. Right, if, if Satan convinces you that actually this world is not so bad, you know why he does that? Because he knows that the world is passing away and he wants you to pass away with it. Obviously you've been fundamentally deceived if you start to think that. But let's hear the words of Jesus Christ clearly. The world is in darkness. Anyhow, and we, with, those, with those thoughts in mind we can broach and we can, we can come to these uh, metaphors with the right boundaries set for us. So Jesus says of his people, you are the salt of the earth. The first thing he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now this is, in one sense, it's not as easy as we claim it to be a verse. You know, I think we just assume that we understand the verse. And actually, I, I, I'm here this morning not even being 100% sure that I know what the verse is, just because essentially Jesus Christ has chosen um, a metaphor, salt, the image of, imagery of salt, that is so accessible that it can have so many applications. What is salt here? Is it, a, is it a seasoning, so a condiment, like it flavors things? So is Jesus Christ saying um, um, Christians are like the flavor of the, of the earth? That's, that's actually possible because later on in the New Testament, I think it's Colossians 3, Paul says we, we speak, we should have our speech seasoned with salt. In that, sense, in that context, the, the concept is, the idea there is flavoring and how the believer's words should be beautified by the fact that you know, we, 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 we are cross-centered even in the words we use and so we speak with wisdom and so on. Is Jesus Christ referring to that? Is he referring to the purifying influence that salt often has and so saying that you know, um, Christians, um, uh, the, the Christians have a purifying influence on the world? Or is he, as I think is the most popular way, I'm just gonna go with that now, is the most popular way of thinking of this, that Jesus Christ is talking about how salt is a preserving influence, it, it, it preserves. Now, especially, this is, uh, this is attractive because more, more for the, the time when Christ was speaking, which is always the best way for us to try and understand imagery, right? It's not simply to impose our understanding of salt now and what's, what, what role salt has, on, on Christ's first audience. Christ's first audience would have thought of salt, among other things, as very helpful, very useful for, for uh, preserving from decay, right? There was no freezers like we have now to, to keep stuff you know, frozen and fridges and so on and so forth. So salt would have done a lot of that. Springing salt on your goods and on your foods would have kept it from decaying quickly. Um, but even that is not some, is not the, only option. So again, before we assume that it's easy to tr translate that verse, I think we have to be, be, be careful. Because also what Jesus Christ might just be saying all, all in all is how essential his people are to the earth. You know, salt is just something that is essential for living. You're the salt of the earth, is what he says. But, but we'll go with, oh, with the emphasis of the, the Christian's presence being there to preserve this world from decay. Essential to the world's existence. If God didn't have his people in the world, 
there would be no hope that God was going to one day redeem the world, that God would preserve the world till his son came and then renewed it. There'd be no hope, if not because his people were there crying for the world, praying for the world, being an, an, an influence in the world so that the world doesn't go as far as it should. We are the salt of the earth. The, the Christians are called to check the inherent decay that is in the earth. The, the, the world is bound to go get worse and worse and worse. And the Christian's presence in the world is essential to challenging that, to influencing that, right? To making sure that actually the world doesn't get as bad as it should or as bad as it can. We are the salt of the earth. So Christ says to his disciples, I know you guys are, will be getting persecuted. I know that people will hate your religion. I know that people will hate your profession, your confession of me. But don't be fooled so that you don't see the influence you are meant to have on this earth. By being beatitude Christians, now, the reason why people persecute you is because you are poor in spirit. The reason why people persecute you is because you mourn. You weep for your sin. You think your sin and your relationship with God is a serious thing. The reason why people persecute you is because you're meek. You refuse to take advantage of others. You refuse to be oppressive. You, you, you refuse to boast. And, uh, and there's this meekness about you. The reason why people uh, persecute you is because you believe in mercy. You don't treat others the way they deserve. You, you believe in forgiving people, giving people other chances. You, these re being like Jesus, Christ-likeness is what gets us persecuted. Right? Our... our, our our refusal to abuse the, 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 the gifts of God so that we live with self-control. Our refusal to, to say, actually, what I do with my sexuality is just up to me, is why the world, why the world despises us. If we, if we say there's a place for chastity and purity, then people feel that you're attacking their own uh, inclination towards immorality, sexual immorality. If you say, I believe in self-control, so um, I don't believe that it's okay to, just to, to, to engage in drunkenness just because I'm happy or want to be, have a party, you, you challenge people's desire, sinful desire, to, to be careless and to live life as if um, they were masters of their own destiny, lords of their own lives. The Christian life is a challenge to the world, and, su and as such, the world persecutes believers. But if the believer makes the mistake of thinking that they have to hide from doing that, or that that's a losing position to be in, Jesus Christ says, don't, don't you see you're leaving the world to decay? The world is going to just fall apart. You're, the preserving, inf you're a preserving influence in the world. It, it might be challenging, it might be painful for people to hear, but your presence, your life lived amongst sinners is a way by which you preserve them from going down this road of destruction, or you preserve the world from getting worse. One of the things this means, both for the metaphor of salt and light, is Christians actually have to be in the world. Never of the world, but we have to be there. 
There's no room for hiding. We don't hide from the world. Um, some of us just have to be very honest. The moment you see unbelievers around, you're flustered, right? The moment we see um, um, anything that has to do with unbelievers being present, people who are not Christians, people who might have worldviews or people who might have practices that are vastly different to yours, vastly um, undermine the law of God and the law of Christ, our, our, maybe our instinctive reaction is to, is to recoil from that, is to move away from that. And in one sense, Jesus Christ says, actually, to some degree, you have a duty to be there. You have a duty to be in those areas. It's my, it's my issue with... Is, is my issue with uh, uh, how, how Christians sometimes talk about homeschooling. You know, Christians speak about homeschooling as if the duty God gave us was to run away from the world. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I, 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 I appreciate that. Um, first of all, children are children, and you have to be very careful about how they are influenced. But we must not speak about it as though the, the good thing about homeschooling is that we run away from the world that we're hiding from the world, that we're just afraid of the world, because that's very unbiblical. That's the, the polar opposite to what genuine discipleship is. Christians don't have to be afraid of the world because they are the salt of the earth. But actually, when it comes to understanding further this particular way in which Jesus Christ describes the church, one thing that is helpful in thinking through what Jesus is emphasizing is how Jesus Christ himself then begins to apply or develop this image of salt. You are the salt of the earth, he says, but if your salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? Um, if, if salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? Now, it's a, it's a difficult metaphor to actually understand. One, because people say, you say, how can salt actually lose its flavor? Is that, even, is that something that's even possible? Well, there's, there's one or two options here. Maybe Jesus Christ is saying, he's referring to the way in which, yes, salt can't lose its taste, but it can be adulterated. Salt can be almost corrupted. It can stop doing its job as salt, as salt because you, you've mixed it with all kinds of wrong things or whatever. Or actually, and, and, and I'm more inclined to think of this, he, he could be saying to, to us, consider the state of, yes, the impossible state, but just consider the state of, of saltless salt. You just consider the state of what it would be like to be salt that doesn't actually add flavor. What Jesus is saying is, if a Christian is not living as the salt of the earth, that Christian is, in one sense, useless. There's nothing more useless than a Christian that is not salting the earth. A Christian that's hiding from checking the decay that's in the world, in particular because they are assimilating, they're trying to be like the world. They're, 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 they're not distinct enough to actually challenge the world's decay. They, they become like the world. And so they're no longer good for anything. It's the most useless state of being. It's the most wasted, it's the biggest waste of potential you can see. To see someone that's a Christian, but that is now perfectly assimilated with the world. And this is where we have to be careful. It's absolutely true that we have to be in the world, but not so we can be like it. You remember what salt of the earth is, is, is possibly saying to us? We, we keep the world from falling apart, from falling far away from God. 
Christians fall into one of those two categories all too often. The first category is to say, I'm the salt of, the, I'm a Christian, so I don't want anything to do with the world. Wrong, you, you're not, you're meant to be the salt of the earth. How can you salt the earth if you're not in the earth? But we also go to the other extreme, where we say, I'm the salt of the earth, so you know what, I need to be in the world, forgetting that we, doesn't mean that we should be of the world, or, or like the world, or, or, or with the world in its worldly actions. The, 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 the biggest, pro- the big problem here is a Christian who is in the world and has just become like the world. He, there's no difference. Your life is not challenging the unbelievers around you. Um, the, you you're, you're not checking any decay. People are not wanting to, nothing is being changed because of your presence. No evil is being stopped because of your presence. You're just like them. You're not distinct enough to make the world wonder that you're different from them. That kind of Christianity, Jesus Christ says, is so useless. It's it's foolishness. And he goes on, particularly on this metaphor, Jesus Christ introduces the concept of judgment for that. He says, that's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The using of the idea of, of casting out and throwing out really seems to um, I- I introduce the concept of, of judgment. It's as though what Jesus Christ is saying is this. You can be certain that a Christianity that is not different to the world around it is a Christianity that's going to be destroyed. It's going to be nothing. The way you phrase it is like, or you think of it like this, Christians are not saved by the things we do, by the works we do. We're saved by what Christ has done. That's absolutely true. But if our lives are no different to the ones of the the world around us, so that we become salt in the earth, it'd be the sign that we never knew Christ in the first place. That's a... That's a rhythm that the New Testament constantly sounds. It's jarring a bit for Christians who believe that we're actually not saved by what we do, absolutely. It's very jarring to then be told, but there's a way you can live as a Christian and then perish. It's jarring for a preacher like me that believes that a Christian can never lose their salvation. To then be told that a salvation that doesn't stand out in the world, or, or someone who claims to be saved, but doesn't live for Jesus in the world, doesn't change, transform the world around them, is going to perish. To have to warn Christians that the type of Christianity you're living is a type of Christianity that's going to lead to perishing. That's how unthinkable it is for Jesus Christ to think of a Christian who does not challenge the world around it. A Christian that does not change the world around them. A Christian that doesn't stop the decay that exists around them. By the way, they are different. They are the soul of the earth. The second metaphor is the light of the world. Now, we don't need to pretend like these metaphors are from, are, 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 are too dissimilar. 
they, they, they both speak to the issue of Christian witness. They both assume the, the world's impoverished state. They both ask the, church, the, the Christian to be involved in the world. But maybe if the first one is emphasizing the way we affect the world by being different and so, and so um, challenging its, 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 its sinful deeds, this one is talking about the way we affect the world uh, by showing it a different way, by, 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 by serving the world in such a way that makes it see that it's in darkness and it needs the light that comes from our Father in heaven. Jesus Christ says, you are the light of the world. He's called us the salt of the earth. Now he calls us the light of the world. Just from a biblical perspective, this particular metaphor, more than any other, brings to our hearts the reason for which Jesus can speak in such ways about his people. Why can Jesus Christ call us the light? Well, when you think of the fact that the phrase, the, the same phrase is attributed to Jesus in, in, in John's epistle, in John's gospel, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And now he calls us the light of the world. We realize that this is not because of a light that we have in and of ourselves. We're just lesser lights. Jesus is the light of the world. But if Christ is in you, if you are following Jesus, then you will shine his light too. So it's not our light, it's Christ's light. And that, that little uh, uh, distinction there is crucial. So, so, so yes, this, you know, the, 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 the little Christ, um, Christian or, or, or children's ditty, uh, this little light of mine, is, is, is nice. But, but, but why, is the, why is the light little, is what I want to know now. Is it little because the assumption is that this is my light. Of course it's little then, but that's not what this, 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 this verse is not talking about you being the light of the world by any light you inherently possess. Right? It's not, the light that you, it's not a light that you have because you're intelligent or because you have some gifts. So it might be that the way this little light of mine is used now is about saying, listen, this, little, this gift I have, I'm going to let it shine. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He, he's talking about not just some natural gift you have, but, for, but, but the gift of salvation. He's talking about the gift of his Holy Spirit. He's talking about his own presence in you. Dare I say that's a big light? It's not a small light. You know? It's not this little light of mine. It's this great light of Christ that we're letting shine. It's what's shining through us. This is where the sermon becomes so convicting because if it's Christ's light, why is it that for some of us there is no light? This little light of mine allows us to make excuses for our hiding. It's, it's, it's only little. It's only my light. Well, it's Christ's light. It should be a big light, it should be a great light. You are the light of the world. And Jesus is, Jesus Christ is not reticent either. He, does, he says you are the light of the world. He doesn't make it a small thing. And perhaps Christ is speaking about his church corporately. I don't think we should make the wrong dichotomy here though. He's speaking to the church, but, but also individuals as they make up the church. You are called to shine my light in the world like a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. I don't think it's a second metaphor being introduced here, rather the stretching of the first metaphor, which is why we go back to it after this statement. And so maybe what Christ has in mind is how in, in, in those times, 
where there, there weren't as many artificial lights that we have, like we have now. On a very, very dark night, uh, let, let's say there was a dark night, you had no light with you, no candles, no lanterns, nothing. A city on a hill, cities would probably have their own torches in place because of security and so on. And that city, obviously for, for us now, it's, it's a nothing light, but that would be such a bright light for someone walking in darkness at those times. They saw a city in a distance, miles away, shining. It'd be a bright light, the only light in that place. And that's probably what Christ has in mind here when he says you're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. It's impossible for this light to be hidden. Unless, of course, folks are making the crazy effort to do so. So Jesus Christ says, who would light, put on a light? And he's probably, he probably again, he's thinking in the context of his own, of that, of that society, in a small room where all they ever had, when there was no natural light, was a, maybe it's a small light of a, of a candle type thing. Of, 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 the, of, of their own types of lamps in those times. And Jesus Christ says, who would light that and then put a, a bushel, cover it, put it under a bed? Who, who would do that? Who would hide that light? You would never do that because you need that light to see. You would, that light would always shine. That light would be shining brightly. It'd be unthinkable to do that. The same way it would be unthinkable for someone to call themselves a Christian and for the world not to be feeling their impact, their society not to feel, it's unthinkable. For, 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 for someone to call themselves a Christian and for them not to be displaying the goodness of God to the world around them. Jesus Christ says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. So in one sense, we see what Jesus Christ means by let your light shine. To let your light shine is to show people that because God is in you, goodness flows from you. Let people see that there's a difference in your life because you know God. It's interesting here because in the next chapter, Jesus Christ is going to speak about one of the marks of false religion is a religion that can't wait to show people, right? That's false religion, wanting to show people that I'm good. But there's a, diff there's a difference. In chapter six, Jesus Christ is rebuking a religion that wants to show people that it is good. Here, Jesus Christ calls us to possess a religion that wants to show others that God is good. There's the difference there. There, Jesus Christ is rebuking those who those things that should be private between a man and God, they, they try and bring between, uh, before others so that they can get some praise for themselves. Here, Christ is asking us to remember that there are those things that if we have been with God in private, would lead to us showing before men in public. There are some things that the person who has been with God won't be able to hide from others. Jesus Christ is asking us for a God-glorifying life here. Good works before men. There's a time to, it's, it's interesting that Christ says, let your light shine. A, we have to be intentional about it. There's a sense in which it's right for the Christian to say, I want people to see that God has saved me. I want people to see, I should want people to see that Jesus has changed me. I want people to see that Jesus can save you from sin. I want people to see how beautiful a life Jesus makes. 
let your light shine. So, so Jesus speaks as though it were possible for us to not do so. Christ speaks as though it's possible for, G- for Christians to be attempting to hide this light. There's no room for hiding. Why, why would that happen? Why would Christians be engaged in hiding their light? You, you can think of a number of things. One, one, it might be that we're ashamed. Jesus Christ says there's no room for that kind of thing, that kind of hiding. Don't let your light shine. You better not be ashamed or cowardly about showing people how God has changed you. Now, the good works extend all the way from, yes, the church being corporately involved in, in you know, things that we call mercy ministries, where churches attempt to feed the, the poor or clothe the naked, provide... Um, for the homeless and so on. Absolutely good works to individual good works. Like, a, like, like you being willing to tell someone about Jesus Christ at work or, or, or just by the patience you show at work or, and so on and so forth. Let your light shine. It might be that we are either ashamed of Jesus and how can that be? We need to, we need to reassess, right, if that's the case. Why are you ashamed to... Be identified with Jesus. Are you afraid of persecution? Most likely. That's what it is. Go back and read the Beatitudes that we, we, we finished with before this. It's, it's, a, it's an advantage for you. It's a blessing for you to be persecuted for Christ's sake. Why, why would Jesus have to say, let your light shine? Because he's warning his people from engaging in trying to suppress that light. Why are we trying to suppress that light? Well, it might be that we, 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 we have other priorities. We think there's something more important about a particular state in time in our lives than letting the light of, shine Christ, of, of Christ shine. Some of us have just got misplaced priorities. Some Christians today are just here and you're hearing me and you're like, wow, it's true. I need to let my light shine. I need to be conscious of living in such a way that folks see that I'm a Jesus follower, that I'm a disciple, that Jesus saved me. Some of us are just so preoccupied with other things. Right? You're so focused on advancing at work, getting the next position and you know, becoming comfortable at work. And you're so focused on that that you actually have convinced yourself. It might not be, you might not have spoken it, but you've convinced yourself that something is actually more important than shining the light of Christ. And if you hear, if you think about it now, you actually have to say, you can't confidently say that you have weighed those things up and not come to that conclusion. The way you've lived, at least, you've, you've realized that. I've actually been feeling like there's other things more important than shining the light of Christ. Wealth, that's why the Bible warns us against money, especially those of us in the West. Money is, is, is the love of money is the root of many evils. So, so co- concerned about increasing your financial status and, and, and implicitly your status in the world and how people see you, that you don't actually realize the most important thing you have to do in this life is to shine the light of Christ. So you compartmentalize. Your light is shining here, you think, when we're singing about beautiful Savior. But when you're at work or at home with unbelievers, you don't realize that's when that light needs to be shined. 
Christ says, let your light shine, let it glow. He wants us to have the intentional, uh, approach us intentionally, aware, what am I made for? That's why it's crucial that he says, you're the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, so that you don't realize, you don't think there's a sphere where something is more important than being just that. This applies to all of your life. Private, public, secular, religious, all of life, I'm made to be a light. What a, it's a privilege, but it's our duty, it's our calling. And this might lead to the next thing. Why are, why, how could a Christian be engaged in suppressing their light? How can a Christian not be allowing this light to shine? Most times at the root of all these things is they're not walking in the light. We're not loving the light. If Jesus has consumed me, if, if the love of Christ burns within me, if he's everything, then I'm bound to want that light to shine. In fact, I have no choice. The, the times when I have a choice, the times when I can make a decision to suppress the light are those times when he, his light is not filling me. When his light is filling me, it's, it's flowing through my ears and eyes. I can't even hide it. But very often, Christians have to suppress this light because we're not walking in the light. We've we got so many areas where we are, we're disobeying God. If you're engaging with sinful conversations with folks at work, making, um, joking about sexual immorality, using filthy language, speaking bitterly about people, how are you gonna just turn around and then try and show them Jesus? It's no wonder you're hesitant now, because ain't nobody gonna believe you. Which like, bro, you've been in, that's, we've been walking in this darkness you've seen for the past few weeks, that's all it is. And, and, and that's where you are, shattered, because you, 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 you're, you, you, you don't, you're not loving the light. And this, that's the greatest indictment of all, that the reason why I may not be a light wherever I am is because I'm, I, I'm not walking in the light. Last thing Christ says there in verse 16 is, when, 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 when people see this, they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Just this last thing here before I, I make some applications. When they see this, they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, so, so what's the aim of all of this? That people may know the living God. Not so that we can be praised. And Jesus Christ is not here advocating a kind of silent, quiet, restrained Christianity. He's talking about serving others for the intention of wanting them to know who your God is. He's not talking about, you know, going to work and just living a right life. And when people tell you, and you never want to talk about Jesus, though. You, know, you don't want people to know that that's why. Now, I'm not saying that all of you have the luxury of just going around to work, giving flies. I'm not saying that. And doing evangelism. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, you need to know, first of all, the purpose for which you're living the way, the reason you're living the way you live is because you want folks to know about your Father in heaven who is worthy of all the praises. Because you could be a Christian who's doing that and, and, and you're still ashamed. And when people are asking you why you live the way you live, you're ashamed to talk about it. Everything becomes very philosophical. Well, it's just my, 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 my worldview is well, you see, my perspective on things is, come on, just get to the point. I believe Jesus Christ died for sinners. If I get a moment to break this down to you, I'll let you know that I live my life and is controlled by the Jesus 
who died so that I can have a way to be in fellowship with God. And now you see the things I do? I do it because through him I'm in fellowship with God. You're saying this so folks can glorify your God who is in heaven. The church is doing this so people can know him and say he's our father in heaven. He's the only true God. He rules over everything. He reigns over everything. But he's also our father. It's a privilege to walk with him, to know him. What, what you're seeing flow from my life is a child's love for their heavenly father. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let me say just these two things in closing. Firstly, friends, mission is, is essential to discipleship. There's no such thing as a disciple of, of Jesus Christ who is not concerned for their witness to a watch, watching world. You know, sometimes, even in Christianity, we, have, we professionalize mission and professionalize witness. And we, when we think of missions and witness, we're only thinking about a mission that we send to, a missionary that, that's sent to you know, far part of the world. And that, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place for that, and I understand the sort of uh, unique way in which that is phrased, but we must never forget that in one sense, Christians are always on a mission. In one sense, Christians are always missionaries. In, in one sense, Christians are always evangelists and always have to be witnesses. And your witness to the world is essential to your discipleship. That is to say, if you are not the salt of the earth, if you're not the light of the world, are you even a disciple? If you're ashamed of Jesus, are you even a disciple? If your life does not in any way challenge people about the need to walk with Jesus, are you even a disciple? Well, let's break this down and be careful because Jesus is speaking. He spoke then, he speaks now. He commanded then, he commands now. He was guiding then, he's guiding us now. He's saying to you and I, is he not? Where are you in the world? What situations do you find yourselves with the unbelieving? Just concretely begin to think of, is it at work? Is it at home where you're constantly among unbelievers, engaging conversation, engaging community with the unbelieving? And what is your life like there? Are you the salt of the earth there? Are you the light of the world there? Can you confidently say that? And if you're not the light of the world there, you're not the salt, why is that? What is wrong? Now, please be careful. I'm not saying that Christians always revolutionize everything and I'm asking you, why is everyone in your, in your, in your, at, at, at the hospital where you work not saved? Why is everyone at the school where you work? And that's not what I'm saying. Because you don't, first of all, you can't save souls and, and even the scriptures not ask you to do that. But your life will testify to something. There'll be, there'll be a, there's a way you live. Are you living intentionally as a child of the living God in those places? And the crucial question is, if not, why not? Because it could be that it's because you're ashamed of Jesus. It could, it, it could be because you're putting something else about Jesus, above Jesus. And all these, all these things are, are dangerous for genuine discipleship. And at the end of the day, we're just like the disciples of the old. To who else shall we go? We have nothing else. For us, we have no other hope in this world than Jesus. And so we can't place anything above him. But last thing to say, is when you think of the metaphors, as I've said, and you see Jesus Christ contrasting, contrasting his people with the world, telling us that this world is in darkness, telling us that this world is decaying. There's a, we ought to feel a sense of, of warning, uh, of warning that outside Jesus Christ, there really is no hope. Jesus says outside of him, there's only darkness. 
outside of Jesus is only decay. It doesn't matter how the world is doing for a season. It's so sad that very often the world waits till maybe there's a pandemic or, or there's a world war for them to start to question and think about eternity. Every other time they, they seem to think they're doing fine. But that's not the case. We don't, we, we don't have to wait till that. And you don't have to wait till that this morning. If you're not in Jesus Christ, if you're not trusting him, if you know deep down the reason why you're not the light of the world or the salt of the earth is because actually Christ doesn't live in you. You've heard about him, you've, you've, you've been around him, but you haven't trusted him. I want you to see that you're, you're playing with your eternal destiny. I want you to see that you're actually, you're, 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 you're sitting with the world in a, in, a, in a vessel that's bound to crash. The world is in darkness, you've been in darkness, and only Jesus Christ can, can, can give you light. And um, here is the, the main way in which the church shines its light, is by calling you to trust this Jesus calling you to repent, calling you to, to confess that you, you've got so much self-interest, you, you've got so much passion for your own sinful desire that you, you can't actually see that you've, your, your whole life has been about hating God. You, you just don't like the ways of God, even though he's right, even though God is just, even though God is fair, you still don't like him. Can't you see there's something wrong with you? And you need to repent. But there's nothing you can do to save yourself this morning. That's not my point. My point is come to Jesus who can deal with your sin. If you see that I'm actually part of this dark world and I'm falling away just with the world, and that's what I deserve to do is fall away, then cry out to Jesus for salvation. Shine your light in my heart. And Christ's light can pierce the very deepest parts of your heart, that very part that doesn't want you to see the truth and admire the beauty of being right with God. That very part, Jesus Christ can pierce right in and give you light and let you see uh, that you need, above everything, you need to be God's child. You need to be walking with God. You need to, to be trusting in the God who made you. The only way you can do that is through Jesus Christ, who washes away our sin through his blood. So this, this morning, come to the light of the world and be saved. Amen.